The green Sundays are 26 weeks long, and uh, sometimes their readings appear for which you cannot figure out how they got in there. But, but, then, but then that means you have to preach on them at least to say a few things. So today we have a very important reading from Luke's Gospel. We have his version of the Lord's Prayer, so it affords the preacher the opportunity to say some things about the Lord's Prayer generally and about Luke's version in particular. But first we we have to say a word about the prophet Hosea, who is a minor prophet. And remember, there are two kinds of prophets. There's major prophets and minor prophets. Major prophets have a big book, and minor prophets have a little book. Uh, the, big, the, the major prophets are not necessarily more important than the minor prophets. They just had much more to say. <laughs> the, the biggest book in the whole of the Hebrew Bible, the, New, the Old Testament, is Jeremiah, and it goes on and on and on. And if you read it in the Greek version, the Septuagint, it's even longer than the Hebrew version. So... It's long. And Hosea is not very long. He's a minor prophet. So we're greeted with the, the reader. Uh, Debrunet had to get up and read, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. You know? So it's a, it's a tough thing. This is probably too off-color, but I'm going to say it anyway. When I was a young, about ready to go to seminary, I used to be, uh, would uh, say Evensong at St. Matthew's Church. They said it daily in the evening, and lay readers could say evening prayer. You don't have to be ordained to do that uh, as, as the public liturgy. And so we, this is about being careful of the danger of not looking at the lessons before you read them. And so uh, back then it was uh, from the King James Bible and there was a reading from Jeremiah that was one of the lessons and it was not marked. So I thought, I'll just open it up to the book of Jeremiah, Prophet Jeremiah and read a little bit. And I started to read and got to them that pisseth against the wall. (laughs) You mean that's really in the Bible? Yes, it is. It's in the King James Version. So I think I invented something like pistiolaro or something like that. Because I just couldn't say it. So let me just say why I think it might be in there, and this could be a stretch. Uh, What this is is about God's faithfulness to the covenant, even though the people of the covenant are not uh, keeping, are are being obedient to the covenant. This is what it's about. But uh, Hosea is using uh, an illustration from his own life to make make a, uh, a point about Israel. He lived in about 750 BCE, 
And he lived in the northern kingdom of Israel. It was a time of great turmoil, and they were being invaded periodically by the Assyrians and other people. And so uh, things were very unsettled, and people were chronically anxious. And as one of the prophets, like Amos, who we, we've been reading, and some of the other uh, prophets, Isaiah, uh, they were saying that this, this turmoil is, is part of... Um, uh, the re- part of is caused rather by why uh, we have not been faithful to the covenant and that we need to do that. We now need to be faithful to the covenant again. So the example that he uses is his own marriage. In the Hebrew text, there is some discussion between scholars about what the word whoredom, translated as whoredom, is. It could be uh, translated, as it is in the Revised English Bible, an unchaste woman. And so it's entirely possible that uh, Hosea uh, had married somebody that was unchaste, which could conceivably mean uh, that she had also been a temple a prostitute in the high places, the people who worshipped Baal. And so they were. Uh, he married her, and then he had children, and so, you know, this kind of reasoning is hard for us to, to follow, isn't it, a long time ago. But his idea was that even now I'll name my kids uh, with judgmental names about Israel's lack of faithfulness to the covenant. So my Old Testament professor, uh, Joe Hunt, uh, used to say, uh, how would you like it if you were walking down the street and uh, Hosea had a couple of his kids. Hi, this is my daughter, Lo-Haruma. Have no pity. <laughs> and this is my son, Lo-Ami. Not my people. <laughs> now, we all know that children these days are often burdened with wacko names that they have to carry with them their entire life that their parents thought, this is just the name, Right? So they have it. It's like Frank Zappa named one of his kids Moon Unit. She calls herself Moon these days, which is probably a good plan. So he's doing this to illustrate a purpose. And so we read this stuff and say to ourselves, why in the world is it in here? And we're moving through it. I don't have an absolute answer to that, but I do know that at the end he concludes that in the midst of everything, God remains faithful. So he's using something from his own personal life, the necessity for him to persevere in his marriage and with his family to illustrate what, in corporate terms, the people of Israel need to do, you know? I was thinking, too, when I wrote my sermon in the marriage liturgy, there is a, uh, in the petitions, you know, there's special prayers of the people in the, uh, in the liturgy for marriage, and one of the petitions is, grant that all married persons who have witnessed these vows may find their lives strengthened and their loyalties confirmed, which is a way of speaking of the necessity of persevering and persevering with regard to your faithfulness to the covenant. It's a very uh, important thing. And it's a constant theme in the Old Testament about God's covenant faithfulness and our uh, fickleness with regard to this. And yet continuously through the process, uh, God remains faithful so that we can, in that sense, have confidence 
but we also know that we have a responsibility and an obligation to respond to uh, this gracious gift, this relationship, the intensity of this relationship. And it's particularly difficult because even in Hosea's time, the issue is it's so easy for us to believe that we're special, that we're a special people, that we don't realize that it, it, uh, that it vests us not with special privileges, but special responsibilities. And this was a theme also that uh, people forgot about that. There's a lot of Christianity that's preached in this country about how special we are. You know, the people that have been saved, the people that are in, the people that are... And this is not for us. This is for those outside who are to be invited inside. And so our obligation that attaches to that is that we need to be generous and inclusive in the way in which we relate to one another. So in a sense, this is what this is about. And when you read these readings, you can maybe take some comfort, even though initially you go, Lord, (laughs) what in the world is this in here for? There are some other things uh, that are there. The Amos readings always amuse me when they begin by Amos saying, I looked and I saw a plumb line. And God said, Amos, what is that? And I said, it's a plumb line. So then we have a bunch of little dialogue about that sort of thing. It goes on and on and on. So in one sense, this is about faithfulness. It's about covenant faithfulness, and it's about perseverance. And this is important because, in a sense, the section on the Lord's Prayer is important. What we have is the Lord's Prayer and then some commentary by Jesus on uh, perseverance in prayer and issues that, that, that come up. I'm not going to preach on those sections, but I always, whenever I read this text, think about the guy who's in bed with his kids. A guy in the middle of the night knocks on the door, one of his neighbors, and said, I have a visitor and I need some bread because I haven't got anything to feed him. And he shouts through the door and says, I'm in bed already with my children and I can't get out of the bed. If I was in bed with my children, I couldn't wait to get out of them. <laughs> and in the old translation, it isn't, but it's because of your persistence that I'm going to get up. It is, if I may say so, a far more Jewish comment, which is, because of your importunity, yeah. I will get up. So it's about persistence, because the persistence is there in such a way as to say, I will respond. It means, of course, being faithful in prayer is an important thing. So the first thing we need to say about this section is that uh, Jesus prayed. And this is, there's more than one place where we're told that he goes off and prays. That he himself is faithful in prayer. And also, there is a piece to this, which is uh, prayer that is learned, a learned experience. You know, there's so many people in every age, I think probably uh, since the beginning of Christianity and before, that prayer is more authentic if it's the release of the heart's natural longings. When I was first uh, a priest, 
uh, I was in some ecumenical endeavors in maybe a less generous era when one of my Methodist colleagues or one of my said, well, there he is, an Episcopalian, you know, they can't pray without the book. <laughs> I have made a determination in the last five or ten years in every public event in the diocese or any committee meeting that I run, I always pray from the book. I have had people still believe Episcopal, if you, unless you pray extempore, it can't be authentic. It can't be from the heart. It can't be open to the spirit moving. Right? And I'm sitting at a table to begin a meeting when somebody's invited to pray and you're going, <laughs> right? <laughs> Urban Holmes, my pastoral theology professor, he left and became the dean of the seminary in Sewanee at the University of the South. Here's the prayer he said in class every, two prayers he said every time we met for class. Direct us, O Lord, in all our doings with your most gracious favor and further us with your continual help that all our works begun, continued, and ended in you, we may glorify your holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he would say, if I can do this one by memory, O God, without you we are not able to please you. Help us in all things to allow your spirit to work in us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Certainly serves the purpose, right? You know, you don't need to... It's like buying a candied apple. It always seemed to me that it kind of gilded the lily, don't you think? <laughs> and there are certain kinds of prayer uh, that seem like that. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, it's important to learn prayers, and it's important to recite prayers that are important. He was a pious Jew, and so what he did every day was, uh, uh, would, would be to say something, for example, uh, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is the only Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus adds, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So they say that every day. So now, when someone asked him, teach us to pray, he, he gives the Lucan version of the Lord's Prayer. So before I get into, I'm going to just read some of uh, ways we can understand these petitions. But I want to say this. There are lots of different Lord's Prayers around. And it affords me the opportunity to say that uh, this, again, about why I harp on the languages, not that I'm trying to appear like uh, some elitist who, who wants to talk about Hebrew and Greek, but why I at least mention it to everybody on a regular basis. The Bible was written for us in every age, but a large part, if all of the Bible was written, was not written to us. It was written to somebody else, to some other group. The story of Adam and Eve in Genesis was not written to us. It was written to a particular group in a language different than the one we understand and in a different cultural milieu. So you have to say, if it's for us, how is it for us? 
And learning how to read to do this is the process by which we, we understand that. So the Lord's Prayer that we learned in the New Testament is in Greek. And it has Hebrew antecedents because it has Hebrew resources. So, we have read and said to ourselves the Lord's Prayer that has come to us from mainly the King James Version of the Bible or the 1928 or the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. And those, those are wonderful prayers. We pray the traditional Lord's Prayer here because it has definitely been hallowed by usage. There's no doubt about it. And there's no, nothing wrong with it. But in the new prayer book, or in the, new, in the 1979 prayer book, <laughs> the, uh, there are two versions of the Lord's Prayer that you can say, the traditional version, and you can say the, the contemporary version. So in the new revised standard version, what we're reading are portions of the contemporary version of the Lord's Prayer, which is in the Book of Common Prayer. And it is also fair to say that the contemporary version is probably a more faithful rendering of the Greek text than the other traditional version. It says what it means. The other thing is that I have actually had people come to see me over my ministry, and I, listen, I'm not criticizing this or throwing cold water on it, and wanting to meet and talk with me about how, the prayer, how these, this prayer is punctuated. You know, the punctuation of the prayer? Because if it has a semicolon here, then this, you know? All right. If you look at the Greek Lord's Prayer, there is no punctuation. If you read the New Testament in Greek, there is no punctuation. Unless it's been added later in certain manuscripts. Sometimes punctuation is not... It would be like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da and then a word comma, let's say, instead of comma, right? So you'd have to know that that's a punctuation or a pause or something like that. So we don't know what the punctuation is in, in, with regard to this, and it's punctuated differently. In the 1662 prayer book, we open with Our Father, which art in heaven. And in the 1928 prayer book, we open with our Father who art in heaven. Right? Well, there's some people who just, we want to have a big long thing on that. You know, why is it that way and not the other way? And what are those kinds of things? Don't worry about it. It's okay. I pray the traditional Lord's Prayer to myself. Lying in bed. You know? That's what I, what I do. So it's the one that's hallowed by usage. And another reason that we use that here is that if there are any locations in the wider culture that use the Lord's Prayer, uh, uh, AA meetings, uh, recovery groups, they, if they say the Lord's Prayer at the conclusion of the meeting, it's the Lord's Prayer that we have always said or known in this culture. The interesting thing to me is uh, uh, now... There are a lot of people who don't know the Lord's Prayer anymore. So it might be good just to use one that we know that we know. In any case, Luke has a different version. 
it's more abbreviated. Some people would say, well, maybe because it's more abbreviated, it's the more uh, close to the original. What I'm going to suggest to you is that in both Matthew, which is where we get the prayer uh, that we have now put into the form that we say and into the content, uh, that's the one that's used the most. Uh, so Luke's is shorter, and it might be the more primitive of the traditions. But my feeling about this is there are two things. One is I don't think Jesus said all this in one go. I think he said it more than once in different times. You know, that's one of the flaws in modern biblical criticism. They, they, they get all twisted up about the fact, well, in Mark it says this, and then in Matthew uh, Jesus says this, but it's slightly different. Have you ever said the same thing more than once? <laughs> right? And it's entirely possible that you could have said it slightly differently than you did when you said it before. So when Jesus is speaking here in Luke, he's using uh, this shorter prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. And this is a testimony by him of the intimacy of the relationship between himself and God. And so Jesus at this point is uh, expressing this and glorifying God. He had absolute confidence, this is one thing about him, of the intensity of his relationship to God. He believed that and was able and made reference to God in terms that were very intimate. Some people have found this out a while back that said, you know, when Jesus says, Abba, Father, it's like saying, Daddy, right? Yeah, but, but what it is definitely is the, the, the intimacy and the... Um, uh, confidence that he can say that to God, but by extension that each one of us can say that too. We can express that kind of in intimacy with God and not feel that we're being presumptuous. And so when we open this, uh, this is what we have. Your kingdom come, and it is, uh, in that case, uh, twofold. One is looking forward to God's future work. And in his preaching and teaching, he will say that when you pray that prayer on a regular basis, we always look forward. But we also have come to realize now that we are part of the, the uh, we are, we need to be part of the process for that kingdom to come. That we are participants in God's plan and needed each person in big and small ways for uh, what we're to do to advance the kingdom. Give us each day our daily bread. And this means in the tomorrow's bread. Uh, feed us in the future as, as we move forward. But it, one of, if the disciples and the apostles heard him say this originally, when that was said, it meant, oh, and give a, make us participants in the messianic banquet which we can understand two ways. One is the Eucharist that Christian people gather for on a weekly basis, and also the promised Eucharistic Messianic banquet uh, in the, the understanding of the people of Jesus' time in terms of what will happen when the Messiah comes, there's going to be feasting. And so we're going to look forward to that. Forgive us our sins... And this has to do with uh, some species of the last judgment or the way we understand uh, 
how those things are going to be sorted uh, moving forward. For we forgive for ourselves, forgive everyone who was indebted to us. And we might understand this as our forgiveness for others does not turn God's forgiveness, does not earn God's forgiveness for us, but is the condition of our continuance in forgiveness. So this, that is a process that is uh, continuing and going on. You know, that's hard to just say that because we've talked about this before. Uh, many of us have been through things and had things happen to us that are very hard to forgive. And we may not be able to personally do that. It may not be possible. So how do we come to terms with that idea? And know that the processes of forgiveness are uh, involved in this. And on my own view is just because you're incapable of forgiving uh, the offender uh, uh, that you have experienced, you can still practice forgiveness with other people. That's not a, that's not a problem, you know. And so one, we might be able to understand that that way. And do not bring us to the time of trial. Lead us not into temptation, but do not bring us to the time of trial. It is a prayer that not that God would stop tempting us to sin, for God does not do this but rather for our pre per preservation during uh, trying times and uh, the anticipated trials uh, during the Christian life. So that's also something that we would understand to be a kind of a uh, future prayer. So let me say something finally. I thought I had something here I wanted to read, and it isn't, so I can't remember what I, what I wanted to say. Um, but, uh, no, I can't. It wasn't written here. Well, there it is. Oh, here it is in my notes. God is asked to forgive sins, not debts. But in terms of our forgiving others, uh, it is for their debts to us. It has been suggested that this reflects Luke's concern that possessions not hinder community relationships. And I think what that means is, is that Luke, in 85 to 90, 80, 85 AD, uh, was in a Christian community of Gentiles who were well healed. And they had also people who were not well healed. And they were beginning for the first time to struggle with what they do with their stuff. And how are we supposed to uh, understand the relationship with what we have? Because in Luke's gospel, we have more uh, on uh, economic justice and equity than in any other of the gospel writers, just as we have more healing stories than any other because he was a doctor. So he's concerned about how do people handle their things and do they use them as instruments of lording it over other people or is there some sort of um, understanding of the necessity for generosity and how do we understand what that means so that when he says forgive us our debts, as Matthew's translated, forgive our sins is what, is what it is in the prayer book. Uh, that we understand that in terms of other, other people. 
And remember what's coursing through the minds of the ancient Near East is this constant idea of jubilee. You know, every eight years or everything, there was supposed to be a time of complete forgiveness. So all debts are forgiven. Land is returned to the former owner that was, that was mortgaged. All of that went on. To be perfectly honest, I don't things were, thing, think things were much different then as they are now. Uh, there wasn't sort of a, a, a global redistribution because we don't have a lot of evidence that that happened uh, in a global sense but was constantly on the minds of uh, preachers and people like Jesus who were talking about its necessity. So that's what what it might mean. If you look into the Jewish sources uh, outside of the Bible, both the Hebrew Bible and the uh, Christian scriptures, you will see lots of prayers and petitions and things that are very similar to the Lord's Prayer. But none of them are quite like the Lord's Prayer. In other words, it is also fair to say without special pleading that the Lord's Prayer is unique in the ancient Near East, the way in which it's prayed and understood, because it has to do with some, here's a fancy word, You another one you can keep on ice, proleptic. It means now and in the future. So something that has happened now, but is also yet or going to happen in the future. And so Christian people are sort of proleptic in their understanding. Uh, we believe that the promise of the kingdom is, not, is here, but it hasn't yet been fully realized. And in the future, it is going to be fully realized. And that's what we pray for uh, in uh, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, give thanks this week for the transformative power of God in your life. And um, remember that it's important to do this. If somebody calls me or Pam uh, has somebody call her and say, uh, my Aunt Dorothea is going tomorrow into the hospital and she's going to have a PET scan. Would you please pray for her? If I get told that, I, what I do immediately is say her name. <coughs> and say the Lord's Prayer. And then sometime later in the day, if I don't do it right away, I go into the church, and I light a candle, and I say the Lord's Prayer in her name. You know? We don't have to go all over the moon about this. We have to just hold her close to our heart and up to God. That's the purpose of the corporate uh, nature of uh, Christian prayer. So... Uh, the other thing I've said many times is that uh, when I first came here to St. Luke's, somebody came to see me and said I was standing on the corner of uh, Main Street and University Avenue, and I was about ready to cross to go to the Los Gatos Coffee Roasting Company, and the light turned walk, and as I stepped off the curb, I had this huge impulse to say the Lord's Prayer to myself. Do you think I'm becoming a religious fanatic? <laughs> they were serious. You know. So maybe it may say how far we've gotten away from this because the truth of the matter is in the traditional Christian spiritual life, at least in Western Christianity and in Eastern for sure, uh, was a term that was used called habitual recollection. Right? So all of us 
not religious specialists, uh, are capable of practicing habitual recollection. And the Savior gave us the Lord's Prayer precisely for that purpose. Amen.